Good morning. It's uh, good to have uh, you all here today as uh, we are uh, concluding our uh, Revelation series, or our Revelation series, I've got my old sabbatical on my mind, as we're completing our uh, Philippians series. And um, I have a couple of thises and that's kind of before we we do that if you'll allow me. Uh, one is we normally dedicate a whole kind of Sunday uh, to this, but the calendar uh, just didn't allow for it. And so uh, we are starting our kind of elder nomination process. If you've been uh, around here for uh, very long, you know that our church uh, is not part of a denomination. Uh, we don't have kind of overseers in that regard. We kind of believe that the local church uh, works best when it's kind of locally governed and locally managed. And uh, one of the ways that our church does that, that we believe is really biblical, is through eldership, uh, local leaders uh, that look after local churches. And uh, the way that we uh, make people uh, elders is that uh, they are kind of nominated from within our church family. And so we have these worksheets uh, at the information desk in our lobby. If you want to grab one of these, these are great to even just learn more about eldership. Uh, but it lays out on the first page uh, some of the scriptures uh, that teach about local church eldership and local church uh, leadership. And then on the second page is just kind of a, a checklist uh, that is meant to kind of spark in you a, a thought of, man, I know somebody that really sounds a lot like this. Uh, and you can uh, write their name down and nominate them uh, as an elder on, on that page, turn it into the church office by September 5th. Uh, and the way that it works is if a person is identified by three different people, uh, so we want multiple people to see these traits in them. If they're identified by three different people, they enter into kind of an elder process of um, uh, the first step is uh, notifying them and letting them know they've been nominated and asking them if they have a desire to do this, because that's one of the things the scriptures uh, say about local elders is, do you have a desire to, to lead in this capacity? And if they do, uh, then there's uh, interviews and um, uh, a sheet they fill out, and there's all sorts of stuff that happens from there. And eventually their name is uh, presented to the congregation uh, in October uh, for you to um, affirm. Uh, and there's also an opportunity for you to say, uh, I've got some reservations or concerns about this person that I'd like to be contacted about, uh, which is kind of our final safeguard. I see a lot of churches don't do this very well. A lot of churches will, will do, um, you know, man, we've got this person's name. We want to present them to the congregation. And man, they got a 75% affirmation vote, right? 75% really believe in this person. But one person sitting in the congregation going, with a major concern that they know something about this person. Uh, we wanted to provide an opportunity for that uh, concern or, or allegation, whatever it is, for that, for that to come uh, to the forefront and for us to be able to have a discussion about it. So um, those, uh, those sheets are at the information desk, like I said, and uh, we would really love for you to pick one of those up, learn about eldership, and see if the Holy Spirit doesn't kind of knock on your heart and your mind about someone uh, who would be really good at eldering uh, our local church family here. Uh, the second thing I just want to cover is uh, I've had a couple people just kind of ask me about sabbatical in general. Uh, mine is starting, depends how long the sermon is, but in about a half hour. Um, and uh, so a couple people have asked me uh, about it. And um, I just wanted to take a, a few minutes to just kind of walk through kind of our, how our church does this, because not, not every church does it, but our church has a seven-year uh, sabbatical policy uh, for full-time pastoral staff. So people that are kind of investing in people and all that. Every uh, seven years, we say you can have a six-week sabbatical uh, and you can extend it to eight weeks with vacation time. Uh, 
Uh, and so I'll, I'll be gone, like Scott said, for eight weeks. And uh, it's just an opportunity uh, to be praying for all of you, uh, to be thinking about the future. And then I have a couple additional projects uh, that I'm working on. Um, one of them is a Levitical series, a series on Leviticus that we'll do next year. That's going to require a little bit of extra study on my part. Uh, last sabbatical, I did Revelation. Uh, I did a Revelation study and came back and did a series. And then uh, uh, Scott and I both do quite a bit of pre-marriage. And uh, there's a new system I want to get certified in during my sabbatical. Uh, we've both kind of become a little bit disenchanted with the one we currently use. So we wanna, uh, I want to get uh, certified on, on that. Uh, and I have a couple writing projects that I'm going to do as well. So uh, thank you, like Scott said, for uh, praying for me and my family. Um, eight weeks, it really goes by uh, relatively quick in, in my mind. And uh, we'll, we'll miss all of you. And, but that's what I'll be doing. And if you really want to be praying... Uh, we will be on a plane tomorrow with a three-year-old, so, uh, uh, and we would really covet your prayers. Uh, we're not worried about our 10-year-old. He's a really great traveler. Uh, three-year-old, we're, we're concerned. I'm not going to lie. So uh, we'll, we'll see how the traveling goes. So, um, all right, let's, uh, let's get into this and uh, conclude Philippians, all right? Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for Jesus. We thank you for his grace. And uh, I just pray as uh, we conclude uh, your, your book of Philippians, that we would just be really tuned in uh, to what you want us to be tuned in to, tuned into. help me to just completely stay out of your way and communicate what you want, it, want communicated. It is, it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Uh, there was a guy uh, that was known to be, uh, by all of his friends, really, really greedy, uh, really greedy. And he bought uh, a brand new kind of luxury sports car and he was eager to show it off to everyone. And uh, he had it kind of parked. And right where it was parked, this kind of 18-wheeler truck came by and just banged in the driver's side of the door right while he was standing by it. And he let out a, a terrible scream. He was so upset. And a policeman came by and started to take down the accident report. And the guy said, I can, can tell you really struggle with greed, don't you? You, you, really, you really care a, a lot about things. And he said, why, why on earth like, would you say that? And he said, well, you're all worried about the side of the car, but you don't realize that the semi-truck actually took off your left arm in this accident. The guy's like, oh my. And he looks down. He's like, oh my goodness, my Rolex. Right? Um, and so it's a silly example of it, but I wanted to ask you, and we're going to kind of start the sermon this way, what is it that you are most concerned about uh, in this season of your life? What is it that you're most concerned about? Maybe you're in a season of life where it's your kids or your grandkids, and you're uh, working on uh, helping them make better choices and uh, helping them develop their character. And right now, you're in a season of life where you would say, my, my number one concern right now, the thing I'm most concerned about is kids. Maybe for you, you're in a season of life. I think a lot of people have been in this spot where you're in a season of life where it's your health. And uh, maybe your health has been going downhill for a little while and you've got lots of doctor's appointments and you would say right now for this season, it's health stuff. Maybe for you, you're in a season where it's your career and you're just trying to make progress in a very difficult environment and you're saying, man, all of my mental energy and all of my mental thinking, it, it goes to career. Maybe like Scott pointed out in the intro, maybe for you, you're in a season where it's like school, Right? And you're not, you, know, you know it's starting tomorrow. At least that's the rumor, right? That it is, it is starting tomorrow and that's just on your, your mind. And we're uh, at the end of the book of Philippians. And like in a lot of Paul's books that he, he writes, he wants to really express gratitude and thanksgiving uh, to the Philippian church for all the concerns they have expressed for him. 
And he also wants to remind them and let them know that his hope in Jesus is absolutely secure. Let's read the end of uh, Philippians chapter 4, starting in verse 10. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all things through him, Christ, who gives me strength. Yet, it was good for you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me uh, me aid more than once when I was in need. Not that I desire your gifts. What I desire is that more be credited into your account. I receive full payment and much more, uh, much more than enough. I am amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts that you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will meet all of your needs according to the riches found in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet all God's people in Christ Jesus, the brothers and sisters who are Uh, with me, uh, send greetings. All God's people here send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. Now listen, uh, throughout the book of Philippians, Paul has expressed his concern for the Christians living in Philippi. In chapter one, he expresses concern over these uh, gospel preachers that had less than ideal motives. Right? Some of them were greedy. Some of them were trying to uh, get more and more money. And Paul says the important thing is that whether or not they have false motives, the important thing is that in everything Christ be preached. In chapter 2, he expresses concern about their attitude. And he says, man, I want your attitude to be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage, but rather he made himself nothing. In chapter 3, he expresses concern about, remember the kind of horror film, the mutilators of the flesh, right? These evildoers who were teaching that you have to become Jewish before you can become a Christian. And and Paul comes down hard on that issue. And in chapter 4, he expresses concern over a church conflict that had been brewing between uh, Yodia and Syntyche. And he wants to get that worked out and he wants them to be united in Christ. And now at the end of the letter, he's spent... Three and a half, four chapters expressing his concern. Now he's expressing gratitude for all the ways the Philippian church has expressed their concern for them. He's remembering previous gifts that they made when nobody else was really supporting Paul, the Philippian church did. And he's thanking them for the current gifts that they sent through Epaphroditus. And he's praying a rich blessing over them because of their generosity. So let me ask you, who is it that you feel concerned about this morning? It is good to feel concerned But I think concerned is most powerful when it's acted upon. When you do something in response to the concern that you feel. So in that way, who do you feel concerned about is not the most important question maybe. The most important question is how are you going to express the concern that you feel? So I want you to think through that just for a minute because Paul's thanking them for expressing their concern. And I want you to put yourself in that position for a minute. Who are you concerned about? Who are you concerned about? And how can you express that concern? Maybe it's an encouraging email. Maybe it's an act of service. 
Maybe it's a financial gift like Paul was talking about. How can you take an additional step to not just feeling concern, how can you take an additional step to act upon that concern and serve another people? And I think that Paul actually sets a really powerful example that this is just one of those kind of nuggets you can take with you or, or, or leave behind or whatever, but I think it's a powerful example that Paul says thank you to them. That when they've expressed their concern, when someone has expressed their concern for you, when they serve you, when they help you, when they support you, Paul is reminding us, simple thing, it's important to say thank you. Now, let me say a couple things about this, all right? Um, Don't be upset if you don't get the thank you. You know, man, I expressed this concern, I I, I did this thing, and I never got a, a thank you. Remember that you are expressing concern for someone who's going through something difficult, and thank you might not be on their bandwidth for, for a little bit. Second thing I would say is allow them to say thank you in their way. I have learned over the years that there are uh, certain kind of cultural conventions when it comes to thank you that some people expect. Right? It should be in a note some people feel. It should arrive, arrive in a certain amount of time. That our, uh, our nation has these kind of cultural rules when it comes to thank you. And while I appreciate that, uh, those are not in the scriptures, as you well know. And so we want to hold on to those things loosely. So don't expect a thank you. I, I want to preach to you. It's good to say thank you. Don't expect a thank you and allow them to express their thanksgiving uh, the way that works best. All right? Uh, I love the transition he makes. He says, I appreciate and I am honored by your concern, but I'm really doing okay. So, right, Paul's saying thank you. Thank you for your concern. Thank you for your gifts. Thank you for all of that stuff. But I just want to make sure you know that I'm okay. I'm doing okay because I have learned the secret to being content. And I think it sounds like something we could all uh, learn from Paul that we are a, a, disconnect, a discontented people uh, in this nation. Every study actually shows this, by the way, that we are growing more and more uh, discontent. And a lot of people think that the, the role of digital media plays a significant role. Let me show you this uh, quote from a, a, an article written called The Sad State of Happiness in the United States and the Role of Digital Media. So you don't have to wonder what that article's about. All right, here's what it says. Digital media activities have a direct impact on well-being. This may occur via upward social comparison to which people feel that their lives are inferior compared to the glamorous, quote, highlight reels of other social media pages. These feelings are linked to depression. Right? So here's what he's saying. He said, man, you think your life is great and that things are going well until you consume social media. And then you look at social media and you see their vacation and you see their home and you see their things and their pictures and their happy family. And all of a sudden you're like, my life is garbage. (laughs) Two hours ago it was fine. Now it's garbage, right? What on earth is going on? And he says, it's this comparison that leads, leads to depression it leads to discontent. It leads to all things bad. And, it's, and, and the reason it's so dangerous is, and we've talked about this before, but you know this, they are posting about what is good in their life. Right? They're posting about what is good. They're not posting about the bad days. Most people don't anyway. They're not posting about the trials. They're posting the vacation. They're posting their kids smiling. 
right? They're posting everybody happy. Uh, they're posting what is good, and you're comparing to what you know about yourself to what you don't know about them. And you're always going to come up on the losing end of that. You just always are. That when you compare, man, that I know right now, you might say, right now, life is a struggle. Family is hard. Uh, I don't have any vacation time in the foreseeable future. You may be thinking that about yourself. That's what you know about you. And you're comparing yourself to what you don't know about them. All you know is one little digital image that they've put on social media. And that comparison is deteriorating our sense of contentment. Before uh, Cheryl and I had Lila, we were uh, talking about getting a bigger house. Um, we have a house, it's a um, three-bedroom house. It's us and two kids, so it's fine, but Lila's bedroom was fairly small. And as we uh, started talking about maybe uh, changing houses and uh, getting something a little bit bigger, I started to think about my grandparents. Uh, my grandparents had three boys a year and a half apart. All right, so. They had my uncle, uh, my uncle Larry, and then my grandmother got pregnant. He was like a year and a half old. My grandmother got pregnant. She gave birth uh, to my uncle David, and then they put my grandmother back in her room, and she's like, something is wrong, something is off. Remember, this was like 72 years ago. So something is not right, and there my dad was, right? They had no idea he even existed, and out came my dad. So she had twins. And, and uh, my, my uncle Larry, about a year and a half apart, and they lived for 40 years in a two-bedroom house with three boys that small, right? And uh, my, grandma, my grandfather did, made a pretty good living, and I know they could have afforded more, and the question is, why didn't they? Were they just naturally more content than we are? Just as a generation or as a people, were they just generally more content uh, was I born, you know, as a 45-year-old, was I born with a spirit of discontent, right? Is that just something I am born with? And I don't think so. I think that my generation has been repeatedly bombarded with images of newer and better, and it's had an impact. Our generation struggles with feelings of discontentment. You've probably had the same reaction I have watching HGTV, and they're going through these houses, and it's like, a dog walker and, you know, a, a part-time barista or whatever. I'm like, our budget's $600,000. How on earth are you affording that? You know, it is bizarre, right? Um, and, and that sort of thing, those sorts of images lead to our discontentment. So let's start out by defining contentment. The word Paul actually uses here in Philippians 3, it's actually the only time it is used in the scriptures, is in this usage by Paul in verse 11. Uh, there is a closely connected word to it that Paul uses a couple other times, one time in 2 Corinthians 12. So let me show this to you. Uh, to you. He says, there, Paul writes, therefore, in order to keep me from being conceited, I was given a thorn in the flesh. Now, commentators have wondered for years and years what this thorn in the flesh was, right? Some people think maybe it was migraines. Some people think maybe it was uh, blindness of some kind. They, they really have no idea. But it was a messenger of Satan to torment me. And three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said, and here's the word, my grace is sufficient. That's the word. My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. 
Contentment is the state of sufficiency. That I have all that I need. I may not have everything that I want, but I have all that I need, and that is enough. And listen, in the scriptures, contentment and peace are very close friends, and contentment and joy are very close friends. There's a story that is told about a pilot who always looked down intently whenever he flew over a certain valley in uh, the Appalachian Mountains. The the pilot would pass overhead and and he'd look down kind of longingly. And one day his co-pilot said, what is so interesting to you about that spot? And, And the pilot said, well, you see that stream down there? He said, I used to sit down there on a log and fish every single day. And every time a, flame, a plane flew over, I would, look down, I would look up and I would say, man, I wish I were flying right now. And he said, now that I'm flying, I look down and I wish I were fishing. Right? Isn't, that, isn't that true? Contentment, you know what it does? It dismisses the lie, and here's the lie, more will bring me peace. That if I just made Studies actually show that people say this. If I made 20% more, I'd be happy. If my house were 20% bigger, I'd be happy. If my vacation time were 20% more, I'd really be getting ahead. And if there was some change in my circumstances, for most people, it really is about 20%, that would lead me to contentment, joy, and peace. And Paul understood something really profound. Remember, he's writing this from prison. Uh, that the only struggle we have with contentment is not in suffering. All right, we're going to talk about suffering and the struggle of contentment there in a minute. We do struggle there. But Paul understood that there is this struggle with contentment even when we have much. Here's what he means by that. More is an insatiable God. It just says, little g God. It is an insatiable God. It is never fully satisfied. More, you know what more needs? More and more and more and more. And some of you will know this, that you you think back to what you were making in your 20s compared to your 30s, your 40s, and your 50s. And if you could imagine what you were making, what you're making in your 50s, if you could have dreamed of that day when you were in your 20s, you'd be like, I'd never complain again. I would be so happy if I could just make that in your 20s. That's what you thought. And now that you're in your 50s and you have that salary, you're thinking just 20% more. Just 20% more. If in your 20s you you could dream of the day that you had the vacation time that you have right now, I would never complain again. And now you're in your 40s or 50s and you have that vacation time, 20% more, right? It is insatiable. You feed it and it just gets hungrier and hungrier and hungrier. It always needs more. And here's what Jesus whispers. I will provide all that you need. Be satisfied in me. Be satisfied in me. Be satisfied in me. So Paul says there is... There is a little bit of of a risk of being content even when you have much. The real challenge, though, of contentment is when we have less. And Paul understood something about this. Here's what Paul wrote about himself. He said, are they servants of Christ? I am out of my mind to talk like this. I am more. I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, been exposed to death again and again. 
Five times I received from the Jews 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open seas. I had been constantly on the move. I had been in danger in rivers, bandits, in danger with my fellow Jews, in danger with Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and have gone without sleep. How's your day going? Um, I have known hunger and thirst and have gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Beside everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Paul needs a hug, right? See, in good times, the danger of contentment is that we believe a lie that I just need a little bit more. In bad times, contentment also dismisses another lie in bad times, and here's the lie. I can't. It's a lie. I can't find joy here. I can't find peace here. I can't find purpose here. I can't overcome this. I can't survive this. I can't. And Paul whispers in the Holy Scriptures to you, in Christ you can. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. And it's in moments like the one that Paul is describing, it's in these moments that people express concern, right? When times are tough, when times are rough, when you've received the 40 lashes minus one, when you've been shipwrecked and beaten and persecuted, people express concern. Paul is in prison. People are worried. They're concerned. And, and no one ever expresses concern when things are good. Paul understands that there is a danger of contentment when, but when things are good, but you've never had anybody approach you and say, hey, things are going super good in your life. I heard you got a pay raise, more vacation time, and a new car. Are you okay? Right? Of course I'm okay. Nobody expresses concern in that moment. But Paul understands that there is a battle there as well. But of course, people mostly express concern when things are rough. And Paul says, listen, I have learned the secret to being content. In good times and bad, well-fed or hungry, in prison or free, I have learned the secret to be content in all things. And here it is. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. I was talking to some people in the hallway last Sunday about what I've kind of learned from the book of Philippians. And for years, I was taught about Philippians that it is a book about joy, almost in totality, and it is. But really, what I've learned about Philippians is that Philippians is a book about being in Christ. Philippians is a book about following him. Uh, Philippians is a book about being transformed and conformed into his likeness. And what happens as a result when we give our lives to Jesus is joy comes absolutely yes and amen, but so does contentment, so does power, so does mission, because I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Now, that being said, this text is sometimes, and by sometimes I mean often, taken out of context. 
Let me tell you what this verse is not saying. This verse is not saying I can do anything that I want to do, right? Did any of you watch the Olympics? Do we have Olympics people that some of you are into the Olympics, right? I really enjoyed the Olympic coverage this year because uh, I'm not in a season where I can just kind of sit down and watch a ton of coverage, but the Peacock, the NBC app, had all of these clips that you could watch, and I loved it. Let's talk gymnastics. I could never, ever, ever walk out, look at me, and I could never, ever, ever walk out and do the uneven bars. I could never do the balance beam. I could not do the floor routine. I couldn't do it. I can pray. I can quote Philippians 4.13 until I'm blue in the face. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Put me on the balance beam, coach. It is not in alignment with my gifting, my calling, or within the realm of God's will that he would even ask me to do that. I would be an embarrassment to myself and my nation. And here's what you need to know. There are a couple types of God's will, all right? We're gonna connect this up to God's will just for a minute. So that's not what that verse is saying. That verse is not saying, I can literally do just whatever I want, right? That's not what the verse is saying. The verse is aligning it to God's will. And there are a couple different types of God's will, the two mainly that I wanna point out to you. The first is God's directive will, directive. All right, this is what you see in uh, uh, the book of Genesis chapter one, where it says, God said, let there be light, and there was light. This is God's directive will. God is directing there to be light and there absolutely was light. And God still does some of this today. He still directs and controls the universe. Your personality, you didn't end up with your personality by accident. Your personality is the result of God's directive will. Your calling did not happen by accident. God's like, oh, I never thought they'd be into that. No, your calling is not the result of an accident. It is God's directive will. Your existence on this planet, you think about everything that had to happen, right, just for you to be sitting here or watching uh, at home today. It is not an accident. It It is the result of God's directive will. Then there's God's permissive will. That, they, that, that uh, there are things that God allows to happen. That we live in this broken, fallen, and sinful world. And someday Jesus will return with fire in his eyes and a sword in his mouth. And he will make all things new and all things bright. But for right now, he allows his permissive will. And you say, well, where is he? Why is it his, uh, his answer to our broken and fallen world right now comes in Philippians 4.13. It is strength. God is not absent. God is not taking a seat. God is not standing back. He has given you the strength that you need to live the life he has called you to live. I can do all things, not some things, all things according to his will through him who gives me strength. He wants us to remember that God in his love for us gives us everything we need to live the life he has called us or allowed us to live. So Paul is in prison. Broken and evil people have put them there. God's permissive will is at play. And here's what Paul says. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. And you're obviously not in prison. 
but to the person today who is working a difficult job and it's hard and it's lonely and you dread Monday mornings and you are praying for God's directive will to come into play and that he will bring you a new job and you just don't know if you can do it another day. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. To those of you that are getting ready to start school tomorrow and you're tired and you're anxious and COVID has worn you out and you're nervous and you just don't know how you're going to do it, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. To those of you who are raising children and on the way to church this morning, everyone's yelling and screaming and it's an absolute train wreck of a day. And you walk into this building and someone's like, how are you doing? And you said, praise the Lord, hallelujah, I'm great. (laughs) To those of you who are about to board a plane tomorrow with a three-year-old who won't sit still, (laughs) I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. To the person who is facing a bad health diagnosis, And there's another round of chemo coming, another round of procedure, another round of whatever, and and you're just tired and you're, you're praying for God's directive will to heal you, but it hasn't happened yet. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. To the person who's enjoying success, to the person who's been promoted and is intimidated, to the person who's about to take a huge step of faith, and you want to remain faithful, you don't want to become discontent, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. It is the secret to contentment. It is the secret to purpose. And it is the state of sufficiency. That whatever God directs, whatever God allows, whatever I face in the coming days, whether it's prison or freedom, well-fed or hungry, victory or what feels like defeat, I can do all things through Christ, it's an important part of that verse, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. So I want to close in prayer. I'm going to do something a little bit different, and then we're going to receive communion. I'm going to read a prayer, um, if you would allow me to do that. It's a prayer for contentment um, that that I found. Uh, The author is Kevin Holleran. And uh, if you'll just bow your heads and close your eyes and allow me to read this over you, I would love to do that. Oh, Lord. You are my shepherd and I shall not be in want, but so often I struggle to be content and I do want more and more. Forgetting that you have graciously provided me with every spiritual blessing in Christ and everything I need for life and godliness. Thank you for not giving me what I want. Thank you, Lord, because my desires would draw my heart from being satisfied in you. Help me to be content in you and what you have given me, and to not be focused on what my flesh wants or what the world tells me I should have. Protect me from coveting the possessions of others, their talent or influence, relationships or prestige. Keep my heart from being anxious for what I don't have, and make me thankful for the numerous gifts that you have already given. According to your word and steadfast love, fill me with the joy and satisfaction of contentment in Christ Jesus. Help me learn to be content in any and every situation like Paul and to quickly reject the idolatry that dwells beneath the surface of my coveting. 
I ask you to continually bring to mind your faithful provision for all of my needs, that Christ died for the sin of coveting, and that in Christ I am free to be content and live righteously, and that godliness with contentment is greater gain than than pleasing my flesh. And may I be humbled and changed by the ultimate example of contentment, of Christ becoming poor in order that I could become rich, and being content to go to the cross to fulfill the Father's will, to rescue a people for himself who can be free from discontent and zealous for good works. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's honor that commitment of Christ right now by receiving communion together. It's under your chair. And Jesus did set for us an example of contentment. And he also gives us the power to be content. So that while it's good for us to express concerns within our body, and we want to be a family, we want to be a body that does that well, it is also good to be able to say to people, man, thank you for expressing your concern, but I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. And we get to encourage one another with both of these truths that I get to say to you, I'm concerned. And you get to say to me, in Christ I'm content. And we both leave encouraged. But it happens in Christ, his body given for you, his blood poured out. Jesus, we thank you for your example. We thank you for your power. May we leave this place content, satisfied, and empowered to live the life you have directed us to live, to live the life that you have allowed us to live in this broken and fallen world, we know that your solution to this fallen and broken world is strength. And so we kind of claim that in Christ Jesus who conquered the grave and gives us his strength so that we can live for you. It is in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Hey, God bless you guys. Let's stand and sing one last song. I love you guys. Uh, I'll I'll see you in a few weeks. And uh, God bless you. All right, let's close with one last song.